to consider the Ten Commandments. But I think one of the primary ones is, and hopefully we will begin to see this 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 morning, is that this is God's Word for His people. It is the words of His covenant to identify us and mark us as belonging to Him. A lot of people think, well, is the Old Testament relevant to me today? Absolutely. And I think that as Christians, we ought not to think so much as Old Testament and New Testament, but one whole Word of God proclaiming to us the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're calling this sermon series the Christ of the Commandments because as believers in this New Testament time post the cross of Christ, we understand them through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so then, let us begin to consider God's Word in these Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 20. This is God's Word. Let us give it careful attention. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is in your neighbor's, that is your neighbor's. And now when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that that, that the fear of him Maybe before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the dark, thick darkness where God was. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
and its truth. We're thankful that within it we see who we are and we see how we might know you despite our sin through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, Father, I pray that this morning, as your word is proclaimed, you would use it as the means of grace that it is to build up the faith of those who know you and strengthen them and encourage them in Christ to run all the more to him and to cling all the more to him as their only hope and righteousness. And for those who know you not, I pray that it would bring conviction of sin, that they cannot trust their own efforts to save themselves, to make themselves better or right in your sight, but that they must flee to Jesus and trust him and him alone alone through faith. We pray this in your name and through the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, a case can, of course, be made that the Ten Commandments are perhaps one of the most well-recognized parts of the Old Testament. They are so famous that you do find them still emblazoned on our public legal institutions and referenced across multiple cultures and in literature and film and songs. In fact, I think if you were to ask most people, most of your neighbors, anyone on the street, they probably could name at least one of the Ten Commandments, if not several. And yet, despite the familiarity, there's also a a widespread ignorance about these Ten Commandments. And this is true both outside the church and within it. Most people, including Christians, probably do not understand what God is really giving us when He gives us these Ten Commandments. For example, if we ask what is the purpose of these Ten Commandments, we without doubt receive many answers, um, both true and untrue. Uh, Some would say that, well, they're the foundation for ethics and morality. Others would say they're, they're a legal code for nations to consider helpful advice. Many people would consider that the purpose of the Ten Commandments is a way to earn God's smile upon themselves. If you keep them, well, everything will go well in life. And if you don't keep them, well, good luck. Things aren't going to go smoothly. And for others, these are like magic words, a way to unlock some secret good life. Now, certainly, there is some elements of truth in some of those ideas regarding the Ten Commandments. They are a moral code. They are the foundation for God's ethics. They are a way in which evil is restrained in this world. They are a vehicle for honoring God and worshiping Him. But these statutes of the Lord... They're given to show us something about God Himself, particularly who He is and how we might know Him by the way He relates to His people. You see, Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, had just gone through the Exodus. God had miraculously delivered them from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. He was leading them on toward that uh, fulfillment of His promise to make them His people and to be their God forever and ever. 
And in Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, God says to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. What is God saying there? Well, He is reaffirming His covenant that He would make His people to belong to Him and that uh, they would be His and He would be their God, that He would make them into this holy nation. But the question would be, well, how can we be assured of this? How can we know that we really belong to you, that we are your people, and that your blessing is upon us? Well, they would know because God would lay out a covenant charter with them. That's what the Ten Commandments are. Now, a covenant, of course, is an ancient relationship between a king and his people. And we know from historical evidence that when an ancient Near Eastern king established a covenant with other kings, usually lesser kings, he would actually write that covenant out on, guess what, tablets of stone. And we have surviving examples of this to this day. So upon those tablets would be written a prologue, identifying who the king is, how great and mighty and powerful he was, and how he was entering into this covenant relationship with others. And they would lay out the terms of that covenant, which when followed would result in the king's blessing. These Ten Commandments are such a covenant charter between God, the king of all heaven and earth, and his people. And he lays out and spells out how they might know that they belong to him and that he is their God. In other words, the Ten Commandments proclaim God's love and mercy and grace to God's people. And they do that still today. God's covenant people today have, of course, expanded from just one nation, the people of ancient Israel, to include people from all nations, all cultures and tribes and ethnicities who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. The church is God's covenant people, and the Ten Commandments are still a charter of God's covenant love and grace towards His people. And so these words are written for us today who through faith to Jesus uh, faith in Jesus belong to God's people and just as they were a witness to ancient Israel and a testimony of his covenant love towards them they are witnesses and a testimony to you if you belong to Christ that you are part of God's household for Jesus has fulfilled them for you And we're going to see as we journey through each of these commandments together that these commands of God are not rules coming from some tyrannical despot uh, that restrict us and hang over us like great chains, but they are laws of God's love 
towards us. They free us from the shame of our sin because we see them fulfilled in Jesus Christ for us. And that is something we all need. We all need to know how it is that God's love or God in His love makes us His own. We need the Ten Commandments because we need the Christ of the Ten Commandments. And so this morning, we're going to consider the prologue to this covenant charter. For here we learn how God establishes Himself to be a covenant God to His people so that His people might enjoy the liberty of His grace and live in the light of His presence and His holiness both now and for all eternity. But before we look at that prologue and how a God establishes Himself to be our covenant God, let us consider a few things practically first in regards to how we go about understanding or interpreting these Ten Commandments. So I'm going to give you five things to think about, and we'll consider these again in the future. Number one, the commandments should be interpreted spiritually. They are God's Word, and as we shall see, they are meant to communicate God's spiritual truth to us. As Christians, we must see the commandments through the lens of who we are in Jesus Christ Secondly, for every negative command of God, there are positive duties that are implied. And for every positive command, there are, there are sins that are prohibited. For example, the sixth commandment prohibits murder. Well, what would be the positive duty implied? Promote life, protect life, enjoy life. Number three, there are sins that are... Uh, these sins that are listed or prohibited are to be understood uh, per synecdoche. Uh, that means that they're simply a head sin that is listed and they represent a whole range of other sins. And so while the seventh commandment, for example, forbids adultery, it also prohibits other acts of sexual immorality, included those committed within the heart. Number four, uh, the starting and end of every commandment is love, chiefly love towards God and then love towards each other. And five, there, every commandment does four things for you. It reveals something about God. It confronts us with uh, what we know about ourselves and our human nature. It instructs us on how we are to live in God's creation in this world. And it points us to the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ for us. And again, we'll refer back to some of these as we journey through the Ten Commandments together. But for now, let's turn our attention back to this prologue of God's covenant charter where He establishes Himself as the covenant God of His people. And He does this in three ways. First of all, God establishes Himself as the covenant God by demonstrating His majesty. So... Uh, if you have a Bible and you want to look at this, you can back up a bit into Exodus 19. And as the people of Israel approach this mountain, Mount Sinai, to meet with God, we're given a vivid description of God's awesome power and might. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. 
and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. So thunder and lightning and trembling and smoke and fire, the sound of a reeling trumpet blast, it's a terrifying display of awesome power. Before the people could even come to the mountain, we see earlier in Exodus 19 that they were required to wash themselves, to ceremonially portray their desire to come before God with a clean heart. And even then, despite that preparation, the mountain is fenced off so that none can touch it. And the point of all of this was that God is revealing to His people His power, His majesty, His strength, His holiness, His glory in such a way that they understood He is the only God. There is none other. He is the almighty maker of heaven and earth. He alone is holy above all the earth. He is their creator and their provider. They were not coming before some powerless God of stone and wood who could do nothing for them. And they were not coming to an equal. But they were standing before the only true God who made all things and rules all things. God displayed Himself with such majesty so that the people would reverence and honor Him as their only God. After all, That is at the very heart of God's covenant promise that they would be His people and He and He alone would be their God, none other. But God doesn't just reveal Himself to the people of Israel uh, and showing His majesty through fire and smoke and lightning and and, uh, trembling. He does so by speaking to them. And so we saw there in verse 1, And God spoke all these things, all these words, saying, The same God who created all that exists by the word of His power, that called universes into existence through His words, now speaks with that same voice to the people. The very God who said, Let there be and there was, utters words to them that can be heard to people like you and me. And that is quite the contrast. Because here you see this great display of God's power and fire and smoke and thunder, the sound of a trumpet. All who witness it are trembling, and yet He speaks to them. He is not so far removed, so high and lifted up, that He is not willing to condescend and speak to His people, to speak words that we can understand and hear so that we might know Him, not just know about Him, but know Him as our God. You see, the words of God themselves, as we read them, show us, they demonstrate to us His awesome majesty. The so-called gods of Egypt from whence Israel had come, they could not speak. 
They could not open their mouths. Ashtaroth and Baal and the gods of the land of Canaan to where the people were going to take possession, they were but silent statues or the imaginations of their minds. But this God who causes mountains to tremble and for fire from heaven to fall, this God speaks to them personally. He reveals Himself through His very words. And we see them in these commandments which demonstrate His great majesty. And what's the very first thing God says? He says, I am the Lord your God. He's revealing His eternal self-existence to the people in this name that He calls Himself. And so doing, He's telling them that He does not rely on anyone else for His existence. He simply is. You see, any other God that we would worship needs some other outside source to make it God. Even if we worship ourselves. But God simply is. He always has been. He is the great I Am. But notice, even in this majestic sense of his being, he is still not so far removed that he cannot be known. He says, I am the Lord. I'm the self-existing one. And then he uses a personal pronoun. He says, I am the Lord, your God. That is unbridled covenant mercy and love. It's the central promise of this covenant that he's making, that he will be theirs And they will belong to Him. They will know Him. And so God establishes that He is a covenant God to His people by declaring His majesty. Secondly, God establishes Himself as the covenant God by delivering from bondage. And so note the second thing that He says to the people in this prologue in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And out of the house of slavery, God is reminding the people of Israel what He has done for them, that He has liberated them, freed them. He is their great deliverer. They were helpless in Egypt, unable to escape the bounds of uh, those chains of their oppressors. And so God raised up Moses, His servant, to lead them to freedom. God's justice was poured out upon the people of Egypt, the oppressors in plague after plague to break those chains of slavery and defeat the enemies of his people. And then when stubborn stubborn Pharaoh still refuses to let the people go and chases after them with his armies and tries to trap them on the shores of the Red Sea, God makes a way for the people to escape by parting the sea and utterly destroying the might of Pharaoh's army forever. And in doing that, God is establishing that he is the covenant God of his people for he has freed them from their bondage. And that is a promise that He has made to them to be their deliverer way back earlier in this covenant of grace. If you go to Genesis 15, God renews the covenant of grace that He makes with Abraham through a covenant ratification ceremony 
And he promises in that that uh, Abraham's descendants will be as numerous as the stars of heaven. And of course, Paul in the New Testament shows us that those who are of faith in Christ are uh, the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus fulfilled it. We are Abraham's offspring if we belong to Jesus. But God said something else to Abraham uh, in that that ceremony as he's rehearsing this promise he says this in verses 13 and 14 of genesis 15 he says know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years but i will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions He's talking about the bondage in Egypt and that he would deliver them. And it was fulfilled just as he said it would be. He would redeem them from this slavery. And in doing this, God is saying, yes, and by delivering you, I am that covenant God. Another interesting thing to note here is in Genesis 15, How does God identify himself? He identifies himself. He addresses himself to Abraham as, I am the Lord. I am the Lord is always tied to his covenant dealings, his salvation, his redemption of his people. When Moses met God at the burning bush, again, how does God identify himself? I am The Lord, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's saying, I'm that covenant God. I'm being faithful to remember what I promised. I'm going to deliver my people. And it's the exact same thing he says as he writes out this covenant charter. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm your deliverer. That's God's grace towards his people. He remembers what he promised and he fulfills it. And that is especially remarkable. It really does make his grace all amazing when you realize that these people did not deserve that. When you look in the Old Testament in that account of the Exodus, and even before they get out of Egypt, you find that they doubt the Lord. They complain again and again to Moses, even as they are being freed from Egypt. They don't believe that God will provide for them in the wilderness, despite His mighty power in freeing them. And yet, that stubbornness and that unbelief and that doubt could not stop the love of God towards His people. He still saved them. He still delivered them because God is a covenant God and this covenant of which the Ten Commandments is the charter document is a covenant of His grace. Notice here in the prologue, that God rehearses His saving hand to His people before He gives them His law. Now, that is important. He doesn't do this after giving them the law because the, the, the law, the, the Ten Commandments, were never intended to be the means of freeing themselves, of saving themselves, of earning God's 
love. They were never meant to be the means by which the people could earn salvation, for the people could never do it. They already proven that they would break His law, that they would follow the desires of their hearts. No, God redeems them first by His powerful hand, and then He gives them the Ten Commandments. In Deuteronomy 6, when the Israelite children would ask of their parents about these Ten Commandments, the parents were to instruct them like this. Deuteronomy 6.20, When your son or your daughter asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers So when they ask this question, why do we have these Ten Commandments, what do they say? Well, so that we would uh, earn God's uh, righteousness, that we would earn His smile. No, the first thing they say is, He gave us these because He delivered us. He saved us. He rescued us from the bondage of Egypt. You see, the law of God testified of God's love to His people and demonstrated that He had saved them for Himself. So God establishes Himself as a covenant God by demonstrating His majesty and by delivering His people from bondage. And finally, in closing, God establishes Himself as the covenant God of His people by declaring His law. As the great lawgiver, God declares His law only, as we have seen here, after He brings the people uh, out of Egypt and delivering them. And these laws that He lays down are not some tyrannical code that He's devised to lord over them in a cruel manner, but they are expressions of love and deliverance that belong to the people that were once bound but are now freed. And the design of the Ten Commandments then is to keep the people from falling back into slavery. They were written by God to love and protect them as His covenant people from the slavery of their own hearts, their own sinfulness. And they are a testimony of what God had done to make them His own. And as the people would follow these, they would reflect back to God His very loving character in worship of Him. And so God has established Himself to Israel then to be their covenant God by demonstrating His majesty, delivering them from bondage, and declaring His law to them. But the question then remains, what about us? Because we are not ancient Israel. Are the Ten Commandments for us today? Absolutely. Because we are God's people if we are united to Jesus in faith. God's moral law still restrains evil in this world. It still convicts of sin and thus drives people to Christ. And it provides a way for God's people to glorify Him 
in this life. But in addition to that, the Ten Commandments are still a charter of God's covenant of grace to God's covenant people. You see, when Jesus came, God promised people uh, that his people would expand beyond the borders of Israel to include those from every nation, every ethnicity. And so the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 calls the church of both Jews and Gentiles the Israel of God, the people of God. And that means then that this covenant charter, which is eternal because God is eternal, of the Ten Commandments, it is for you today if indeed you belong to Jesus. Just as the prologue of the commandments shows us how God established himself as the covenant God of Israel, the ancient people of Israel, so he does for you as well. In other words, the Ten Commandments preach to you the gospel. And in doing that, they have a far broader and deeper meaning to you as a Christian than they did under the old administration of God's covenant of grace. I mean, consider these three things that God does here in the prologue in the light of Jesus Christ that shines in your heart. So at Sinai, God demonstrated His majesty through the powerful display of His authority by speaking His words to His people. And Jesus displays His majesty, how? By coming down from heaven and becoming like us, yet without sin, dying for sinners, rising again to conquer death. And He demonstrates in doing that that He has all authority over heaven and earth and even the grave itself. Jesus is called the very Word of God, the way, the truth, and the life. He is the majesty of God clothed in the flesh for us, and He speaks words of peace to calm our troubled hearts. Secondly, at Sinai, God rehearses how He delivered Israel from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. Jesus delivers his covenant people from far more than the chains of a force of forced labor. But he brings forth his people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his light. He delivers us all for whom he died from sin and Satan and death in the world. The exodus of Israel was a foreshadow of our deliverance. So much so that the Passover celebration, which retold the story of God's saving hand of His people as He snatched them from Egypt, has now become the Lord's Supper, which retells to us our exodus, how Christ came and died and gave Himself up and His blood was poured out as the blood of the new covenant to save us from our sins. For He is the Passover Lamb, the once-for-all Passover Lamb, uh, slain to save His people from all their sin and sorrowing. And just as the exodus from Egypt was all about God's grace, so is our exodus in Christ all of grace. Israel, of course, complained and wanted to go back to Egypt. How often are we tempted by 
the riches of this world, the desires of our own hearts to look away from Christ. And despite our temptations, despite our failures, and despite our sin, He still reaches out to us in love and mercy and saves us and makes us His own. That's why it's a covenant of grace. We didn't do anything to earn that or or deserve that. He simply does it for us. And Jesus fulfilled all the demands of God's law in our place so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. These Ten Commandments, of course, are like a mirror. They reveal to us who we are by nature apart from God's gracious redemption in Jesus. I mean, God says here, you shall not murder. Why? Because we're all murderers at heart. He says, do not commit adultery because we are all adulterers in our corrupt natures. So our only hope then is to flee to Jesus who pardons and forgives us from every transgression of God's commandments. And by unmasking our sense of self-righteousness and driving us to Christ, the Ten Commandments show us the grace of God that He makes us His own despite our unworthiness. Finally, at Sinai, God declares His law to His people as a testimony that they belong to Him. In Christ, the law of God no longer condemns us as sinners, but as a testimony of God's love towards us. The Ten Commandments are our charter of liberty. They show us that we do need Jesus and that in Jesus we are freed from our sin to live for the glory of God through His law. The Ten Commandments are a a rule of our gratitude and thanksgiving towards God. They teach us how to live in Christ and to enjoy God forever. No, they are not some binding, burdensome rule, but a law of love. You know, a rule that actually prohibits one thing is a rule that also frees you to do many other things to protect you from your own sin and the sin of others. That's God's gracious provision shining through these ten commandments, these ten words of God that He speaks. I mean, think of it like a traffic sign. Why do we have them? Well, they do restrict us. They restrict the way we drive, where we can go, how fast we can go. At least that's the intention. And they do that to protect us, to make sure that the way of travel is safe and orderly. That's how the Ten Commandments function when we seek to live by them through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus transforms the Ten Commandments. He is the Christ of the commandments. And we can only understand them truly and properly through Him. And so if you want to understand these Ten Commandments then, you must know the Christ of the commandments. And that means you come to Him in faith. And you bow to Him as your Deliverer, your Savior, the one who speaks the very words of God to you, the one who is majestic from on high, yet came down so that you might know God. And so know Christ. Flee to Him. If you have never looked to Him in faith, oh, I would encourage you to do so 
and know God's blessing. And if you do know him, rejoice. Rejoice that the Christ of the commandments is yours, that you have been made part of God's people. You belong to him, and nothing can change that. And you have an everlasting testimony to that fact in this charter document of the Ten Commandments, for they are the charter of God's grace towards you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would continue to impress your word upon our hearts and remind us of this truth, that you would encourage us to continually to look to Christ, that when we read these Ten Commandments, these Ten Rules for life and godliness, oh, we would not feel burdened, but we would rejoice that you have so loved us to make us your people and call us to know you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.